Thank you for joining me on Deep Dime with Dr. Tracy, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tracy Pearson. Welcome to the after show. I thought I would share my thoughts on this episode and give you a little behind the scenes information about the episode itself as a special gift to those of you in podcast land. You're going to hear some personal stories and some secret or not so secret intel on what it was like to make this episode. Producing a television show is a lot of hard work. No, really, some of you are probably thinking, but hear me out. Now, I've never shied away from hard work, but what makes producing this show difficult are two factors. It's remotely produced and it's live. I can record an episode of a podcast over and again to get it right. And in the early days, I did. But I can't do that on live television. You get one chance. This episode presented with some unique challenges. First, let's talk about production. This was the first time I had hosted a television program, though I had been on several of them. It's different when you're the host. It's also different when you're in a remote studio. After I started my monologue, what we call block A, my teleprompter died. Everyone uses a teleprompter for this kind of work. There's no secret behind it. No one should think that Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson is reciting anything from memory. Using a teleprompter is an art to do it well. The way a teleprompter works is that it displays my script and it moves as I'm talking. AI technology allows it to read along with me and to scroll to the next line of text when I'm ready to go there. It's a great piece of technology when it works, but it died. It stopped moving and I was stuck. I wanted to start cursing, but I couldn't. I didn't have a commercial to go to and I didn't have anyone I could signal to in my physical space to help me out in some way. There was no control room monitoring what was happening and who could start fashioning a solution like I was on Apollo 13. So I had to wing it. I did the best I could. It obviously wasn't what I had hoped would happen, but it does remind me a bit of a personal experience I had from law school. Most law students want to be trial lawyers. I went to Syracuse University College of Law and I took two trial practice courses trial practice and advanced trial practice. In trial practice, one of our first exercises was for each of us to stand up in front of the jury box and talk for three to three and a half minutes. Our professor, Professor Travis Lewin, who I think about to this very day and who I dearly loved, I understand he's still associated with my law school and they named the trial program after him not too long ago. He was a tough, lovable curmudgeon in every sense. While we were speaking, he would keep time, sitting on the judge's bench directly behind us using a stopwatch. Professor Lewin recorded these sessions and he required you to watch game tape with him. It was torture. It was a great exercise, but it wasn't easy. In those days, I struggled with self-esteem. I think all law students do to an extent. And I also had to talk for three and a half minutes in front of a group of people who are judgy. Let's face it, law students think they are the cat's meow. They are high-achieving students who never anticipate failure. Now, I don't know how I ended up among all these people because I was accustomed to things not going my way for most of my life, but there I was among all these people. I was a little nervous. I suffered through a year of courses to be a 2L, a second-year law student, 
And I, like most law students, wait for this moment. Trial practice. I was standing in the Bon Shonik and King, what I'll call the BSK courtroom, also known as the big courtroom. And as Professor Lewin likes to tell back in those days, they've since moved into a newly renovated building. The old BSK courtroom was designed wrong. It irked the heck out of Professor Lewin. Legend has it, he was away, and they built it, and it was designed and built wrong. What do I mean that it was built wrong? Courtrooms are designed in a specific way. It goes back to lack of technology and tradition. A lawyer can walk into a courtroom in any courtroom in this country and know where they're supposed to sit because of the design. The exception is if the judge has some odd local rule. Because there was no amplification technology back in the day, the witness stand was located closest to the jury box. And because the plaintiff, or in the case of a criminal matter, the government, has the burden of proof, they sit closest to the jury. So when I walked into any courtroom in the country, I looked for the jury box and the witness stand. No jury box, since not all courtrooms have them, no problem. Just look for the witness stand. In the BSK courtroom, the witness stand was on the wrong side of the courtroom. If you're facing the judge's bench, the jury box was on the right-hand side, and you guessed it, the witness stand was on the left-hand side, the furthest away from the jury, who, if it wasn't amplified, would be straining to hear and straining to see. For a teaching classroom, it was stupid to design it that way because students need to learn what to expect. So here I am in front of the jury box, nervous. In fact, I could hear the camera recording us move back and forth as it twisted and turned to keep up with my body movement. It was a little distracting. I wasn't nervous beforehand. I could envision myself doing the exercise, but when I stood up to do it, I froze. Professor Lewin said, that's okay, start over. Click went the stopwatch. Whir, creak went the video camera. I screwed up again. Professor Lewin said, okay, final chance. I couldn't fail, but I was unnerved. With one more chance, I pushed through. I remember rambling about being a failure and not knowing why I thought I could be a trial lawyer and so on. If you were watching from the outside, it might have looked like someone unraveling. But to those in the situation with me, it was a freaking act of bravery. When the stopwatch clicked off, I remember being drenched in sweat and thinking, there is no way I can keep this up. Like, when was ad drop? Professor Lewin gave me, yes, a slow clap. I retreated to the council table farthest away from the jury box and wondered if it were possible to will myself to spontaneously expire. I was mortified. The story about the courtroom has a happy ending, which makes me love Professor Lewin all the more. Family weekend was coming up, and as Professor Lewin told it, the mock trial demo was the highlight. Syracuse's trial program was award-winning back then, and it is now, ranking number seven in the country. He needed two students to do closing arguments as a demonstration. We'd be given a closed universe fact pattern, and we were to argue our respective sides in a criminal case. He wanted volunteers. No joke. Everyone volunteered. I sat there. He selected a classmate, Dr. Andrew Knoll. Andy had attended medical school and had returned to the classroom to earn his law degree. Then the unthinkable happened. Professor Lewin picked me. I thought he was high. He told me not to screw it up. I was befuddled. 
but it was the challenge I needed. I couldn't let Professor Lewin down. I practiced my tail off. When time came for me to do the demo, family and friends of students were seated in the jury box. The courtroom was packed. The event was simulcast into the classrooms because there was overflow. Hundreds of people would be watching. I couldn't screw this up. Professor Lewin reminded me again as he sent me on an errand to get pens. Don't screw this up. I had already fixed in my mind that I had a client and that client depended on me. I couldn't screw this up. The time went by like a bullet train. At the end, Professor Lewin polled the jury. Polling the jury is when the judge asks each juror to stand and to affirm that their verdict is consistent with what the jury foreman reported on the verdict form. One by one, each juror said my name. Juror one, juror two, and so on. Juror 12 hesitated. He said, Andrew, but then thought better and said, I wanted to say Tracy, but I feel bad for him. There was laughter. Fast forward 20 years. On live television, my teleprompter froze, but I kept going. Look, I didn't sound as polished as I wanted to, and there was room for improvement. But I credit Professor Lewin and him forcing me to get back up on the horse, so to speak, for not dissolving into a puddle or saying screw this and signing off. I've learned in my lifetime of trial practice and teaching and all manner of life experience, you simply must keep going. Screw the critics. Screw the people who don't understand what it takes. You did the best you could with what was going on at the moment. I was feeling a lot of pressure doing something new with broken equipment. Sounds like factor overload. I was also tackling a difficult topic where disagreements over the issue of police use of force has itself resulted in tragedy. As we say in the law, cases beget cases. I wanted to treat the people who run either side of the issue with respect and care. I hope I did that. As I said during the episode, I wanted to show the viewers two people who would say unexpected things. Larry Forletta was a federal DEA agent who thinks that there is corruption in the police force, knows that there are bad cops, and thinks they should be found and fired. He thought Derek Chauvin should never have been on the police force, never mind supervising new officers as a training officer. And Larry would have physically confronted Chauvin to keep George Floyd from dying. So here's this white former federal law enforcement officer who had put other law enforcement officers in prison, who was agreeing that law enforcement has a problem. Ryan Harrison Sr. was a unique find himself. He's a black lawyer who represents employers in labor and employment disputes. If you aren't familiar with that work, they are the lawyers who are defending the employer from discrimination suits, among other things. Yet, he had a law enforcement background, and he testified in support of police reform and in support of bills that would restrict police use of force. He didn't say it on the show, but in the production interview, he told me that protesting is necessary and allows him to do the policy work he does. Both guests delivered. But unlike the courtroom where I'm empowered to interrupt a witness who may be giving a longer answer than is necessary, I didn't want to interrupt these guests who had gone over time. If we had a commercial sponsor or breaking news or I had to hand off to another show, then yes. But here, I felt it wasn't a good look. So we went a little over planned time, four minutes and 10 seconds, not so shabby. I'm okay with that under the circumstances. You learn from it and move on. Ryan talked about Peel's policing principles and whether he knew it or not, he skunked me. 
During a production meeting, I called out that it appeared that policing in the U.S. was founded on racism, with white people operating according to Peel's principles, and people of color, slaves, subjected to the Barbados Slave Codes of 1661. He agreed, but limited it to that period, essentially slavery. When we talked during the live program, Ryan agreed, but then he talked about a time where policing improved, the 1980s. I was prepared to confront him with the Kerner Report. The Kerner Report was commissioned by Lyndon Johnson's administration, which found in 1968 that law enforcement was part of a complex, interconnected institution that facilitated institutionalized racism. With the minutes ticking away, I moved on to the tragic case of Dan Shaver. What makes the case even more tragic is that it is largely unknown to most people. Dan Shaver was shot five times in the chest from close range in a hotel room after being asked to do contradictory and impossible things. And the police officer was allowed to return to the force, though fired, and then to retire with permanent disability. This is an example of corruption that you see in institutions. One hour is not enough time to discuss this issue. But I was proud of the work we did in bringing some new voices to viewers and listeners and who challenged stereotypes. Oh, where does Dr. Tracy come from? I've gone by Dr. Pearson. While appearing on the Power Hour panel talk show on ENSL TV, the host, Mel Andre, referred to me as Dr. Tracy, and it stuck. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive with Dr. Tracy, the podcast. You can watch Deep Dive with Dr. Tracy Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can also listen to the show as a podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you have an idea for the show or you want to share your thoughts, feel free to reach out to me. You can tweet me at Tracy Explains, Deep Dive TV, or email me at info at drtracy.media. Be sure to follow me on Instagram and LinkedIn, too. Deep Dive with Dr. Tracy, the podcast, is produced by Dr. Tracy Media in association with ENSL-TV.